Harvard Divinity School. Billings Preaching Prize Competition, April 20th, 2022. Thank you so much, Heather. On behalf of the Office of Ministry Studies, it is my pleasure to um, welcome all of you to this noon service. Um, each spring, the Divinity School holds a preaching competition under the Robert Charles Billings Fund. The fund was established in 1904 to recognize preaching and pulpit delivery among Divinity School students and was named in the bequest as the Billings Prize for Preaching. Each of our uh, com competition entrants uh, have a 10-minute sermon that they are to deliver. Um, in recent years, we've asked them to do so electronically uh, because of COVID conditions, but we found out that that actually worked a lot better. <laughs> so we, we did it again this year. So all of, we had 18 uh, uh, competitors who uh, entered wonderful, wonderful sermons. And if we could have 18 finalists, we sure would have. They were simply outstanding. But we do have a jury of uh, staff, faculty, instructors of preaching, and um, denominational counselors who watched and judged. It's, a hard, it's such a hard word to use. Preaching is an art. And judging art is it's kind of oxymoronic. So I, I prefer to think about this as a celebration of preaching. And, and, and I, I, I sincerely want to express to all of you how strange we feel at having to have chosen three of you to represent uh, this group. But that's how it works, and that's what we did. Um, and so we're very, very grateful uh, to present to you our three finalists today, uh, Mauricio Bruce, Sharon Christner and Erica Williams, who you will hear in turn. But we also, as a part of the Billings Prize for Preaching, we also offer prizes in reading. For many years, the Massachusetts Bible Society has offered a Bible of their choice to the student who reads scripture in a way that the jury, the panelists, find most compelling and most fruitful for the hearers. And so this year, we are delighted to present that prize to Carolyn Elizabeth Beard. Give her a hand. Give <laughs> In the spirit of our commitment to multi-religious education, we also have added a prize for reading of a non-scriptural passage. And the winner of that prize for this year will also be receiving a text of their choice, and that winner is Jessica Young Chang. You will be hearing from both of them today. The finalists for the preaching competition are awarded through the Billings Bequest a financial award. The second and third place uh, awardees receive $750 each. And the finalists, the, 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 the champion, <laughs> The winner of the competition receives a $1,000 prize. Uh, so we're very grateful to the Billings uh, Foundation for all of uh, their support, their continued support over over 100 years. That is simply outstanding. And today, helping us with uh, the selection of the winner, we have a variety of community members. We have denominational counselors, alumni, local ministers and practitioners, 
uh, all of whom have seen, heard, and delivered their fair share of sermons. So they are all in the house, sprinkled throughout this congregation. We're also grateful to um, our assistant dean for multi-religious ministry, uh, Monica Sanford, for setting up our electronic voting system this year. So if you are a part of our jury and you do not have the QR code that you are supposed to take a picture of in order to get to the tally sheet, can you slip up your hand right now, please, so that Monica can find you? Everybody's all set? Everybody's good? Okay. All right. With that, I'm going to get out of the way. Please uh, welcome warmly our first preacher, Mauricio Bruce. <laughs> I remember a moment in my life not so long ago when I felt trapped. I felt that if I kept going the way I was going, I was going to slowly drain the life out of myself. But if I chose another path, one that felt more genuine to who I was, I was going to be judged, I was going to be rejected, and I was going to be shunned. I lived with a crushing sensation in my chest. I slept with it, I traveled with it. I felt there was no way out of it. And yet, though I told myself constantly that the path I wanted was not an option, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, and I want to start my sermon today with a story. It's a really old story, and probably most of you already know it. It's the story of Adam and Eve. But just in case you didn't grow up with it, I'm going to retell it. Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, were born in a garden where all the animals were friendly and the food was free. Nothing could hurt them. There was nothing to worry about. There was no danger. It was paradise. A god, whose name is not revealed in the text, tells them that there's one tree they can't eat from or they'll die. And the pair don't listen, and they eat from the tree, and they don't die, but they get evicted out of the garden. That's how the story is often told. But there's something else there in the details, because the first thing that happens after they eat the fruit is that they realize they're naked. Something changes, and we usually rush to the part about getting kicked out of the garden and having to face the harsh world and sin, and we don't stop to think about what the fruit actually did. It was called the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. I never really understood what that meant, so I changed its name, and I'm going to call it the fruit of self-awareness. And I think that's so important that I want to stop here for a moment. Because thanks to the fact that Adam and Eve ate that fruit, I am self-aware. I know who I am. I know where I am. I'm a little bit more conscious about my place in the universe. And that's huge. So follow along here, because that choice, that ability to choose between something we're told to do or to believe and something that aligns more with what our souls want, is part of self-awareness. Eve was starting to exhibit some of that before she ate the fruit. She knew she wasn't supposed to touch that tree, and yet she was curious. There was something in her that called her toward that fruit. 
The snake pushed her along, but she made a choice. She made a decision. And look at us now gathered here today. <laughs> that decision, I think we make it every day and we make it often. We choose between what we are told by someone we need to do, we need to be, and what we know inside our hearts that we want to be, who we want to become. What the unnamed gods in our life tell us to do or to think, and what we need to do to express our complete beings. I can think of a couple of times in my life, like I told you, when I stood on the brink of that decision, choosing a career that my family didn't understand, or coming out in a very Catholic country, in a conservative family, where I felt that if I chose that path, I was going to be less loved, I was going to be rejected, I was going to be shunned. I'd be an outcast. But if the worst that could happen is that I'd be sent away, why couldn't I stop thinking about it? Why did it feel so urgent? The only way to know is to connect, to become self-aware, to take a bite out of Eve's apple. Have you chosen self-awareness over fear lately, over the voices in the dark? Think about your life. Think about the musts and the mustn'ts. Think about the unnamed gods in your life about the places where you feel trapped, and about what makes you curious. Think about what moves your soul and calls you from just beyond your reach. Think about those moments when you've heard someone tell you that if you do something, if you become something, you're going to get kicked out of the tribe, or of the family, or of the garden. And if that's true, <laughs> if that's so scary, then why are you still thinking about it? The world needs us to become self-aware, now more than ever. We have to come back to that moment in that garden so long ago when Eve chose that apple. And I'm asking you to step up and to step out and to start choosing for yourself. Can we, like Eve, <laughs> grow curious about our place in this world, about our purpose here on this earth? Will you take out a bite from the apple of self-awareness? I hope that we all choose self-awareness each time. And I hope that Eve chooses that apple every time she has a choice. Thank you. <laughs> reading from the Gospel according to John. Now a certain man was ill, a Lazarus of Bethany, from the village of Mary and her sister Martha. The sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Rather, it is for God's glory that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. When Jesus arrived in Bethany, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. When Martha had said this, she went home and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher is here and is calling for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. When Mary came to the place where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon, y'all. Here's a reading from John 14. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Sometimes, while I'm walking around campus at night, I stop to see my friend Chip, who lives in an alleyway about two blocks from here. So far, we've talked mostly about coffee, free food, and the nuances of biblical interpretation, which makes me think that he would fit in just fine right here at Divinity School. His consistent presence in that place brings life to it. On those nights, I think about Chip and the temperature of the air and the long wait for Section 8 housing. 
And always, my mind pans over the academic and office buildings of our university as they exist in the night. A huge, mountainous citadel of large, pristine, ornate, heated, comfortable, empty buildings. Rooms upon rooms upon rooms guarded against use. And I think about how the kingdom of heaven is not very much like that. Lord, have mercy. My friend Maria lives in a hallway of the largest area hospital in all of Europe. She sleeps sitting up in a set of bright blue plastic waiting room chairs bolted to the wall under flickering fluorescent lights at the dead end of the hospital labyrinth. Her grandmotherly greetings make the place somehow warm and good. There are dozens of others sleeping there with her because it's warmer than being outside and because generally no one comes and tells them they need to leave. But people do complain. It's the same controversy as everywhere concerns of security and sanitation, liability and institutional self-protection. This is not the place, comes the refrain. This is not ideal. And no, it is not ideal. But without this limited, non-ideal mercy, there would remain one pristine, non-liable, empty hospital, and perhaps a hundred more human beings out, like flung stars in the dark, attempting to survive terrain far less hospitable to human life. Lord, have mercy. I have a friend named Anna who lives in a Vatican palace that overlooks St. Peter's Basilica and the colonnades and the square. This place has terraces, archways, murals, chandeliers, everything you could ask for or imagine, and Anna's jokes and stories make the place even more beautiful. Her favorite story to tell is of how she came to live in the place of a queen after many years of sleeping in the doorways of grocery stores. This palace, when it was acquired by the Vatican, was going to be used as a luxury hotel, which was the obvious, tidy, and lucrative option. But the Pope himself intervened and opened its doors to people who didn't have another place to be, many of whom had been making their lives just outside its doors. There is one more friend I have in mind, and he makes a way to live in parts of me that I didn't think were inhabitable, places I was not comfortable letting him into, and by living there, he makes it beautiful. And all the time, he was preparing places for us. And when my friend Jesus makes places for us, it is not like the places that protect themselves. When you come to the door of his place, he is not going to ask you to leave citing policies or pointing out the mess you might make. He has already broken the protocols of nature, time, and consequence to come and love you. He is not going to say he cannot be held liable. He has already been held liable. He is not going to say, 
This is my father's house. It's not really up to me. He is not going to say, this is not the most appropriate time and place. He is not going to say, we will review your application. And he is not going to consult his lawyers. While you are still far off, he is going to see you and run toward you and throw his arms around you. And when you try to tell him about your inadequacy, he will be busy finding you beautiful things to wear and calling for a celebration. When you get lost in the dark, he is going to drop everything to come and find you. He is not going to leave you. He is going to prepare a place for you. A brief content warning, friends and loved ones. This poem contains an anachronistic term for black or African-American. Theme for English B by Langston Hughes. The instructor said, go home and write a page tonight and let that page come out of you. Then it will be true. I wonder if it's that simple. I'm 22, colored, born in Winston-Salem. I went to school there, then Durham, then here, to this college on the hill above Harlem. I am the only colored student in my class. The steps from the hill lead down into Harlem, through a park. Then I cross St. Nicholas, 8th Avenue, 7th. And I come to the Y, the Harlem Branch Y, where I take the elevator up to my room, sit down, and write this page. It's not easy to know what is true for you or me at 22, my age. But I guess I'm what I feel and see and hear. Harlem, I hear you. Hear you, hear me, we too, you, me, talk on this page. I hear New York, too. Me. Oh. Well, I like to eat, sleep, drink, and be in love. I like to work, read, learn, and understand life. I like a pipe for a Christmas present, or records, Bessie, Bop, or Bach. I guess being colored doesn't make me not like the same things other folks like who are other races. So will my page be colored that I write? Being me, it will not be white. But it will be a part of you, instructor. You are white, yet a part of me, as I am a part of you, as American. Sometimes, perhaps, you don't want to be a part of me, nor do I often want to be a part of you, but we are. That's true. As I learn from me, as I learn from you, I guess you learn from me. Although you're older, and white, and somewhat more free. This is my page for English B. 
A new world order. Quoting from journalist Tim Evans writing for Raw Story, President Joe Biden name-checked the new world order conspiracy in a mid-March speech to the business roundtable. Biden said, now is the time when things are shifting, and it is about time that the United States responds to Russia's invasion of Ukraine be known that we are seeking to be a part of the new world order that is out there, and we've got to lead it. Biden couldn't have chosen a phrase better suited to throw gasoline on the bonfire of American right-wing conspiracy theories. New world order. Conspiracies has been steadily snowballing for decades, fanning flames of fear of a secretive, powerative elite with a globalist agenda, which is conspiring to eventually rule the world through an authoritarian one-world government. It can be tempting in the academy to be dismissive of conspiracy theories, but, but this does not neutralize them. Conspiracy theories flourish most in societies with high inequality, significant lack of access to education, and where average people have minimal trust in their social institutions. In this kind of setting, when people are looking for reasons for their own illegitimate suffering, demagogues can make powerful moves. Conspiracy theories are an incredibly convenient means of setting struggling people at one another's throats instead of getting them to look all the way up the food chain. And when they look up the food chain, what do they see in this country? I'm glad you asked. As I traveled this nation as an organizer with the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for more revival, I have seen and heard the cries of the poor and huddled masses who are yearning to breathe free. Those who have been forced to live in the American nightmare due to the poverty when the wealth of the top 6% in this country could end poverty. As we enter the third year of a global pandemic where over 6 million people have died and the United States has the highest rate of 1 million people. And as I watch this world try to return to normal, my soul cries because we cannot return to business as usual in this country with the death-dealing destruction of business as usual. And I know that we did an audit on America in 2018, the Poor People's Campaign, and we called it the souls of poor folks. What we found out there, well, there were 140 million poor low-income people in this country. 67 million of them look like the majority of you in this country. The United States has the highest rate of child poverty in the world, and voting rights protections in many states are weaker than they were 50 years ago. One in four eligible voters isn't registered. The United States imprisoned, detains, and deports more people than any country in the world, and 53% of every federal discretionary dollars are spent on the military, and only 15% goes to anti-poverty programs. I think Tupac Shakur said we got money for wars, but can't feed the poor. 13.8 million U.S. households cannot afford water, and poor are bearing the brunt of climate change effects. I'm from Flint, Michigan, right next door to Saginaw. And I want you to know on Monday it will be eight years since the water crisis happened, and we still drinking bottled water. Take that. This is not right versus left. 
Both parties have blood of millions on their hands from the death-dealing policies of capitalism and white supremacy that are the hegemony of this nation. The order in this nation is just plain morally wrong. And adversaries from both sides are saying, oh, you're just asking for too much. But I'm here today to let you know that we're not asking too much. People are just asking, can we live? And the scripture says, for God so loved the world. It is a cry against imperialism in all forms, a cry against all imperial aggressors, whether these are Russia or the United States. It is a cry in defense of Ukraine, of Palestine, of Afghanistan, of Iraq, of Somalia, and Haiti. It's God's condemnation of imperialism and the global campaign of anti-black colonialism. And so Jesus, the brown-skinned Palestinian Jew, who was lynched because he stood against the Roman Empire for bringing a new world order. He told us what the new world order was in his inaugural sermon in Luke 4, 18, verse 19 through 18 through 19. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, to the house of Bethany, to the protocols, those made poor by society, to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captive free, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord now, which meant the jubilee, which meant the canceling of all debts. And so Jesus came to bring a new world order. He was not a chaplain of the empire, but a prophet of God. And when he healed the sick, he did not ask for a copay. He stood up for women, and he brought those on the margins of society into the center. So today I'm here as a follower of the originator, I believe, of the Poor People's Campaign. And I bring a fierce, urgent message that we are on the cusp of a new world being born, a new Jerusalem being brought into it. And it is up to us to make sure that we build it in the way that Jesus told us to. So I'm asking each of us, myself included, which world do we want to live in? If we want to live in the world that Jesus described, we must not worship a homeless man on Sunday and walk past one on Monday. We must work to ensure that all God's children have a place to lay their head. We can't say that black lives matter and refuse to speak out against the anti-blackness campaign that was established on these shores in 1619. We can't say that we care about trans people if we do not make sure that they are loved and seen and let the powers that be know that if you mess with them, you're messing with all of us. We must be honest about what this nation has been and seek to right our wrongs. We got to put some skin in the game, HDS. We have to leverage our privilege and power for the sake of justice. And we can't wait for someone else to do it. We are the ones we have been waiting for. And Jesus commanded us to continue the work he started. So this is our time for action. And a new world is possible where everyone is respected for being created in the Ama'odi'e, which means the image of God. So a new world is coming, y'all. And therefore, we must hold on to hope. We must not allow evil and hatred to have the last word. We, the people, must do all that we can to establish the new world order that Christ commanded us to do. And remember that this work is a part of a collective destiny that there have been many others who have come before us and there will be others to come behind us. Our job is to do what we can now. And we're not asked to do everything, but we're called to do something and we cannot wait. We must be reminded of the words of St. Oscar Romero that says that we are prophets of a future, not our own. And we must remember that we are not in this by our own selves, that there is a great cloud of witnesses who lived during tumultuous times and their words and their works remain to give us hope that someday 
we'll all be saved. And so today I can hear my sanctified mind. I can hear old Fannie Lou Hamer, a sharecropper, down from Mississippi who, when almost beaten to death for trying to register people to vote, she stood up and said, you know what, sometimes to tell the truth is to run the risk of being killed. She said, oh, but if I fall, I'm falling five feet, four inches forward in the fight for freedom. I'm not backing off. Oh, and I can hear old Langston Hughes today reciting his poem, America Will Be. Langston said, oh, let America be America again, the land that has never been yet and yet must be the land where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's, the Indians, the Negroes, me who made America, whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain, we must bring back our mighty dream again, likes to say it, America. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be a new world. Gonna ask Dr. Monica Sanford to come up. And we have uh, flowers to present to, uh, to the winners of prizes today. Oh. Uh, the first prize for the reading of scripture, you'll get your Bible later, but today you get flowers. <laughs> Please uh, put your hands together for Carolyn Beard. <laughs> The prize for the reading of a non-scriptural text goes to Jessica Young-Chang. And the 2022 Billings Prize for Preaching goes to Mauricio Bruce. Now, for all of you who participated, our, our readers and our preachers, please do not leave after the dismissal. You will come up and we will take a wonderful picture uh, to commemorate this marvelous day. So we invite the uh, noon service committee to come and lead us in our, in our closing. Thank you. Sponsors, Office of the Chaplain and Religious and Spiritual Life. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.